Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio and what the papers don't say. Today, football's dirty money. This after Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich was sanctioned by the UK government along with seven other Russian oligarchs deemed to have close ties with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Chelsea's club shop has been closed. They can't even sell match tickets, but they can continue to play. The government says that Putin has had a close relationship for decades with Russian President Vladimir Putin. They say the association has included obtaining a financial benefit or other material benefit from the government of Russia. These included tax breaks for his companies, the buying and selling of shares from and to the state at favourable rates and contracts linked to the 2018 FIFA World Cup. Now, the oligarchs, not just Abramovich, but the eight in total, are said by the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss to have the blood of the Ukrainian people on their hands. The question is, how much more dirty money is circulating around English football? We're going to speak very shortly to Lee Hilliard. Luke is from the High Pay Centre Think Tank, which looks at uh, social inequality. We're also going to be talking to football finance expert Kieran Maguire from Liverpool University. But as always, wherever you're listening around the world, if you want to join in, well, please do. If you've got a contribution to make or a question to ask, just request microphone access and we'll let you on. My name's Adrian Goldberg and this is Byline Radio. If you're new to Byline Radio here on Twitter Spaces or on the Byline Times podcast, as I know many of you will be, just to let you know who we are. We are not funded by oligarchs. We are not funded by any kind of corporate backer. We do not have a traditional entrepreneur or proprietor funding us. We are funded by ordinary people like you. So... If you want to support us, please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. Now, that's a brilliant traditional monthly printed newspaper. But if you do take out a subscription to Byline Times or a membership, you're not only buying the newspaper, but you're also supporting Byline TV, the Byline Times podcast, this radio station, and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And that's where you'll find details of how to subscribe as well at bylinetimes.com. Let's welcome Luke Hildyard then. Uh, Luke, as I say, is a, an academic. He's a well, he's from the High Pay Centre think tank. He can tell us more about what they do. Luke, welcome along. You're on Byline Radio. Hello, mate. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're a, a small think tank, uh, and we're interested in things like pay inequality, uh, the power of big business, and the super rich. So that very much covers the likes of Roman Abramovich then. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the Russian oligarchs and the, um, the, the other billionaires and, uh, and super rich individuals who exert a lot of power in Russia and uh, indeed uh, in the UK and across the world. Just explain how closely linked Abramovich is to Putin or how closely linked he is said to be anyway by the UK government. Yeah, so the, the, the document that the government has put out yesterday is the basis for sanctions. It explains that um, Abramovich uh, has, has collaborated with the Putin regime for, for a long time now. Uh, he made uh, a, a big pile of money uh, initially from buying state assets at controversially low rates. He was governor of a Russian province for some years. Uh, he's done 
subsequent deals or the companies these con- controls have with the, the Russian government at, at favourable rates over the years, either uh, buying state assets or selling his own companies back to the state. Um, and uh, he's the largest shareholder in uh, a, a company that's potentially involved with supplying materials used by the Russian military. So, um, so very close links. And, and in that context, with uh, everything that's going on in the in the Ukraine, um, the, the the sanctions look uh, look very much justified. Uh, and I guess the sort of the question that people might ask is: We've known that the. Uh, Putin regime is a, a, a pretty sort of brutal, uh, repressive uh, system of, of, of government. And why has uh, why have we rolled out the, the red carpet to uh, oligarchs who are a key part of that system in the UK for so long prior to the uh, the, the recent crisis in Ukraine? Yeah, Luke, stay there if you would. And if people want to ask you a question, I know you're more than happy to take them. Also, want to welcome on to the podcast. Kieran Maguire, he is an academic. He's from Liverpool University, a football finance expert. Welcome along, Kieran, to Byline Radio. How are you doing? You're right. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's another quiet day in the world of football finance and money. <laughs> As Luke says, these links between Abramovich and Putin have been known about for many years. I mean, clearly. Russia hasn't invaded Ukraine previously, or at least not in the wholesale way that it has done so now, although many people argue that the invasion actually started in 2014. Do you think football and the government have suddenly discovered a conscience about this, Kieran? Or is it now they've just got to the point where they have to be seen to be doing something? Um, As far as this issue is concerned, football will say that it should be treated identically to any other industry. And if uh, if other UK companies can export uh, goods and services to Russia and, and vice versa, and if there can be investment from, uh, from Russian uh, oligarchs into the UK in the property market and other markets, then, then why should football be treated separately? So, so that's always going to be football's defence. Uh, should should we should we as football fans expect to treat the the game that we love to a higher degree of moral and ethical scrutiny than uh, uh, you know, an airline or an automobile company? Yeah, well, that's an interesting point. So if we have I don't know Russian oligarchs buying huge properties in central London, if we have Russian oligarchs making investments in our media companies, for example then why shouldn't they make investments in football clubs? They should be treated no differently than any other enterprise. Well, that's, that's the view taken by some. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm strictly a numbers dude, so I, I, try, to, I, I try to skirt around the, the, the political and, and, and ethical <laughs> issues. Uh, but uh, you know, given what has happened in, in Russia uh, the, 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 and and what Putin has done in, in invading, but it, it is war. Let, let's let's not pretend any otherwise. Um, that there is there is no way that uh, I think that uh, that uh, Russian investment can be can be accepted. Uh, although you know, a, a, as we speak, there is another club uh, in in the English uh, professional game which is owned by a Russian individual. Uh, indeed, uh, who at the moment anyway does not face sanctions as far as we understand. Um, tell me, Kieran, about the impact of this on Chelsea. They've won the European Cup twice. They're not going to win the Premier League this season, but they're the best club 
after Manchester City and Liverpool this season. So they're clearly very competitive. What's the immediate impact of these sanctions going to be on that football team? Well, um, if, if we take a look at the way that Roman Abramovich has run Chelsea Football Club, he's he's treated it as an executive toy, as a as a personal uh, as a personal fun palace, and he's he's put huge amounts of money into the club. And what we've seen relatively recently is he effectively uh, covers the the monthly costs by lending money to Chelsea. Sometimes he'll then take that money out when Chelsea have received money from sponsors or broadcasters. So the last financial year, he lent £150 million and he, and he took back 130 So he, he, he effectively works as the, the, effectively, you know, the bank of mum and dad or a payday lender in respect of the club, except it's all interest-free. Um, this leaves Chelsea with a predicament because um, they only had £17 million in their bank account based on their most recent accounts, which are admittedly a few months old. But the wage bill is £28 million a month. So the first question you ask is, you know, in you know, two weeks, two and a half weeks time, how is that wage bill going to be paid? Uh, well, that's a very interesting question. And I was chatting this morning to the group Fair Game, of which I am an ambassador. I have to declare an interest there. They're seeking to make football more sustainable in the long term, less reliant on these oligarchs. And Chelsea are by no means the only club who are reliant on a, a wealthy investor. And Fair Game said the situation at Chelsea is yet another example is why football needs a radical rethink. The question marks over the club's future are a result of a culture that ignores financial sustainability. Too many clubs are being bankrolled and the question has to be asked, what happens when they disappear? We need to move away from a culture that is largely dependent on owner benefactors. In 2020, 52% of clubs were technically insolvent and that was before the pandemic. These numbers need to change. We need real-time financial reporting, powers to intervene when problems arise and crucially, the sustainability index, an index that uses the vast sum of funds from the TV revenues to reward well-run clubs, clubs that are financially sustainable and can survive without an owner benefactor. And the truth is, Kieran, isn't it, that even the biggest clubs, and Chelsea are a great example of this, do rely on this external funding, which sometimes does not get repaid to the benefactor. It is either effectively a grant, an interest-free loan that is never repaid. Yes, I mean, in, in the case of Chelsea, uh, it was £1,514,000,000 has come from Roman Abramovich to, to provide funding for the club. Um, and and I, you know, I absolutely accept what, what Fair Game have said. But if you actually talk to football fans, it's not what they want. If, if, if we go back to uh, another recent takeover in the case of Newcastle United, they had an owner, Mike Ashley, who is a controversial figure, as we know, he ran Newcastle United on a sustainable basis. The club did used to break even from year to year. Mike Ashley was loathed on, you know, in, in the Newcastle area. Why was that? It was precisely because he wouldn't spend more money. Um, so so you know, do, do we have to have a reset in our mentality when it comes to fans? Do we want a sustainable club or... You know, you know, the reaction of Newcastle fans, and this isn't a criticism of them. You know, we're now richer than God. You know, when when the PIF deal was was approved, um, and and they they started looking at uh, you know who are they going to sign and how much money could be spent, um, and so on. So uh, there's a strange relationship, but in terms of many of the stakeholders in the game, um, some people 
talk about sustainability, but when you actually dig deep, is that what they really want? Mm. Well, I suspect many fans are split on this, actually, Kieran. I think there are fans who would welcome true sustainability in football. Mm. I have to say, as a season ticket holder of West Bromwich Albion, I would welcome it, not least because the lack of... Uh, the fact that clubs are not run on a sustainable basis distorts the whole game for me. You know, my, my club has to rely on the income it gets from TV and the income it gets through the gate, but there's no wealthy benefactor, even though we have Chinese owners, one of whom is supposedly a billionaire, but we, we've none of that money finds its way into my football club. And the, the top clubs tend to be run on a model where they're reliant on this external investment so i'd be quite happy as a fan and you know from an ethical point of view i'm quite happy to see football run on a sustainable basis but i also acknowledge that many fans the prospect of a new owner on the horizon all they'll say is how deep are his or her pockets and can we have some of that please for our football club and they won't shed too many tears or or lie awake at night worrying about whether it's fair or sustainable or ethical you're absolutely right. That they're like they're like children in a in a toy shop with their mum and dad, and can I have this and can I have that and, and so on, um, because we, we we like to we, we like the afterglow of success, uh, and if we have sustainable football, does that mean we also create a a self perpetuating closed shop? Because those clubs who already have a financial advantage uh, in terms of they've got bigger stadiums, they've got bigger commercial links, they, they therefore tend to be playing in the Champions League. Does that bake the money in? And we end up with, and, and it could, that, that accusation could be made already in respect of the Premier League. You, you're baked in with exactly the same clubs feature, finishing in exactly the same positions every year. And you end up with something similar to what we have in Germany, where Bayern Munich win win the Bundesliga every year, and and everybody else is playing the minor, chasing the minor places because they they do have a more of a sustainable model there under the fifty plus one rule. Interesting stuff, Kieran. I know you've had a very busy morning. Feel free to stay with us, but feel free to drop off as well because I know you've been doing numerous uh, media outlets. It's great to speak to you as always. You're welcome to stay, though. It'd be great to have more of you. And uh, if you want to ask any questions either of Kieran while he's here or of Luke Hildyard, by all means do if you're a football fan or if you're not a football fan. Luke, you and I were chatting a, a little early before we started record, re, uh, recording and you referenced Roman Abramovich's involvement in well, the, the military industrial industrial complex of Russia. On the Byland Times podcast, that's been described to me by one of our guests, a Russia expert, Zarina Zabrisky, in more colourful terms, if you like. She describes Russia as a mafia state. It's a state where you can only ascend financially to mega wealth with the sanction of Vladimir Putin. But you can't simply then just say, thank you very much, and walk away. There is then a code which dictates that you owe Putin then, and that if you don't honour that code, he will find a way to punish you. So many oligarchs find themselves in this position. I'm not for a moment being sympathetic towards them, but just explaining that if you are to succeed in Russia, you require Putin and you then owe him loyalty. That seems to be the case, certainly for very many of them, if not quite all of them. Yeah, and I mean, that's one of the, the issues with the sanctions, really, is that um, the, the obvious intent is that, um, well, the, the, the oligarchs are a key part of the um, 
of the governance model of of Russia, right? Um, Putin helps them get rich or in, uh, allows them to get uh, obscenely rich. They then cooperate with Putin, uh, and a, a key part of that bargain is that the uh, the oligarchs are then able to spend their money in London on things like mansions, football clubs, private education for their children. Uh, and if you deprive them of that, if you, you put sanctions on them and say they uh, they can't spend their money in London, then uh, a, a key part of the, the, the benefits of the system for them uh, falls away. So you think they're less uh, inclined to support Putin and uh, they will exert pressure on him to, to change the way he, he conducts himself. Um, the the problem is that it, it's Putin that has the power, not the oligarchs, and that you know, it's him who's letting them get rich rather than them uh, bankrolling him into power, really. I'd still say that the, the, the sanctions are uh, a, a worthwhile tool, both in terms of, of, of punishing people who've got uh, rich to this obscene degree in a way that's really exploitative. I mean, obviously, our, our thoughts primarily at the moment are with people in Ukraine, but the um, Russia, whatever you want to, however you want to describe it, a mafia state or in, in other terms, the, the people who've been the victims of that for uh, for many years now are the, the Russian people themselves. Kieran touched on something else that's relevant to the broader debate, I suppose, and this discussion today is discussed is dubbed football's dirty money. Now, there are many fans who look askance at the ownership of Newcastle United through the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. Now, that takeover was predicated on the assumption that Saudi Arabia directly, as a government, will not control Newcastle United. So we're told that, that there are these kind of clear divisions. But nevertheless, it is the public investment fund of an oil state and an oil state that is sadly known and notorious for its human rights abuses and whose leader, Mohammed bin Salman, has been accused by international human rights groups of complicity in the murder of the journalist Kamal Jashoshi. And people will be saying, what is the difference between Chelsea and Newcastle? Yeah, rightly so. And I mean, the, uh, the, the Saudi regime has been involved in this uh, conflict in, in, in Yemen for many years that, it, that bears a lot of similarities with, um, a lot of differences as well, but a lot of similarities with uh, Russia's uh, invasion of the of ukraine so um you've got uh, a brutally repressive regime causing uh so much death and suffering uh in a in another country through their military intervention there uh but the, as as you say the, the the saudis are our allies uh rather than facing sanctions and being kicked out of football and and what have you um, so, I, I mean, I'd certainly agree with that. I think it's um, uh, 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 really shocking that the, the, the Saudis were allowed to uh, to buy into Newcastle. But I can see why the football authorities would have been placed in a, in a difficult position, A, by the, the UK government and the UK's economic ties with Saudi Arabia uh, uh, more broadly, but also in terms of the people they've allowed to come into football previously, um, 
from you know with associated with controversial states or or or, or, or business interests um it makes it more difficult to to suddenly draw in a line in the sand re ethical concerns uh, over saudi arabia yeah. Uh, Kieran, I'm, I'm always intrigued, and you and I have spoken on various platforms about this in the past, about football's owners and directors test. And, of course, from the Newcastle United point of view, I, I guess there's an equivalence here with Chelsea in that the UK government generally welcomes Saudi investment in the UK. So I might argue, well, why should a football club be any different? Why should we expect it to be in any way ethically or or morally superior? But we do have a range of investors from overseas in our national game, owning clubs that are well-loved local institutions whose provenance is largely unknown. Yes, um, sometimes we, we choose not to look too closely and, and in respect of some owners who are UK-based we don't look too closely as to exactly how did that billionaire become a billionaire because it's you know, it's it's not from helping old little ladies off, across the road, um, but as as football fans, how much of our time is spent with regards to the owners? You know, normally that the the people we see in the directors box, the people who hopefully we're going to be writing out large checks to sign players, and and you know, I, I go to football to forget about life. Um, but, should, but that doesn't make me that doesn't make me a good guy from doing it. But I'm I'm perfectly honest. I, I go to go to escape from some of the realities and and uh, to to have that that sheer joy and, and craziness that only football brings. Um, if we're going to look at football through a different lens, then is it the same sport that that perhaps we we think we're normally talking about? Interesting stuff. You're listening to uh, Kieran Maguire, football finance expert from Liverpool University and also to Luke Hildyard from the High Pay Centre Think Tank here on Byline Radio via Twitter Spaces and the Byline Times podcast. If you want to join in, and I know that Matthew is keen to have a chat, feel free to request a microphone and we'll let you on very shortly. shortly. If you're new to Byline Radio, though, just let me explain who we are and what we are. Byline Times is at the root of what we do. It's a, a frank and fearless newspaper reporting without fear, without favour. It's been exposing the corruption in British public life for the last couple of years now. So if you do want to support what we do, please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. You'll get a monthly newspaper, a proper traditional newspaper with ink and everything. It's really good, edited by the wonderful Hardeep Matharu. But you're also helping to support the Byline Times podcast, which I present and produce you're also helping to support Byline Radio, Byline, Byline TV, and our brilliant news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And if you want to take out a subscription, then just go to that website, bylinetimes.com. Matthew is here. Hello, Matthew. Welcome along, mate. You're right. Hi. How you doing? You okay? Yeah. Welcome. Go on, Matthew. Um, yeah. I just it's just an interesting point um, Kieran made around you know basking the glow of success and that kind of thing, and you know what will happen if you pull the plug on external funding in football and i guess one of the thoughts that that they've talked about in the podcast before is do you go to kind of an mls model where every club gets the same budget every club gets a wage cap and every club has a you know basically no promotion no relegation you've just got a fixed you know closed shop of clubs that that get the same amount of resources you flip to a draft system 
it's just so far away from what makes the English game great and also what makes the English game so accessible for people to sports wash, whitewash their money, as we've sort of seen with the uh, the PIF at Saudi Arabia, clearly at Bremovich, you know, my own club, um, Forest, I'm sure, you know, there's an element of Marinakis wanting to improve his, you know, standing in, in international relations. But, you know, I guess I guess open question to the room, to, to the guys on the panel. Is there, you know, do you, do you think there'll ever be a will to kind of fundamentally change the way that the English game is run to kind of give that sort of level set of everyone has the same amount, sort of socialist utopia of everyone gets the same thing and it's about how well you recruit and how well you coach. <laughs> it's, an inter- it's an interesting one. Kieran, by the way, has gone, as I say, I was uh, happy to let Kieran go. He, he has been sort of doing a lot of media outlets today and uh, he's, he's a bit worn out, but uh, appreciate his uh, contribution. Uh, before I go to Luke on that, Matthew, uh, I think uh, there is, is there maybe a middle way where clubs you know we still have uh, i suppose the basis of a free market model of football to an extent you know so clubs who get bigger attendances would be allowed to spend more than clubs who get smaller attendances as a fan i have no problem with that but one where for example the tv money is more equitably spread i mean let's not forget that england and indeed scotland but england in particular had a very vibrant football culture into the 80s, even before the arrival of satellite television. You know, English clubs, notwithstanding the, the great difficulties of hooliganism at the time, Liverpool, Aston Villa and Nottingham Forest all won the European Cup for English clubs in the 1980s. Now, except that times have moved on, you know, we live in a different world now, but it, I think that it is possible, isn't it, to have a model of, of football that that isn't kind of top down isn't done in the uh, in the in the american nfl model but but where you just don't have these sort of grotesque inequalities of wealth and where as in chelsea's case you have these benefactors effectively ensuring that their club can never drop out the top three or four i don't know what you think about that perhaps i think there's always going to be a disparity right and if you take away the ability for clubs to be invested in and be bankrolled until they reach such a point look at Bournemouth Brentford for example and mm. um, Brentford probably a bad example is they they've kind of funded themselves via recruiting one and selling selling players at you know grotesquely inv- inflated fees Ollie Watkins for 25 30 million pounds whatever it was has, has funded them through it's the same problem as a parachute payments they've just found a way of getting around it the kind of feels nicer than the Premier League just giving them money. In 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 reality they're still bene- they're still benefit they are still the benefactors of the fact that the T V rights are so high and teams have that ability to spend that sort of money on them sort of players. But do you if you were to take away or to allow clubs who get higher gates, therefore higher advertising revenues, therefore bigger sponsorship deals to um to dominate, you're still gonna have that sort of Close shop at the top where Man City, well, Man United, Liverpool, teams that do, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 fans a week will always have an in, in, intrinsic value that's higher than Bournemouth, who can fit, what, 14,000 people into the state. Yeah, yeah, no, Matt, yeah, you, um, Matthew, you're, right, you're raising some very interesting points. What, what, what do you make of that? Uh, I think Matthew, Matthew's raising some good points, Luke. 
Yeah, um, so it's a, it's a really good question. Um, it's so I just wanted to uh, come back to on this to, to something related to this that Kieran said about the um, the Newcastle fans largely welcoming the the Saudi takeover, and I found it a bit depressing that they did. But equally, I can understand why, and I I don't think it's necessarily uh, an art. And in a fan, a, a statement of fan opposition to sustainability in football. The the thing with Mike Ashley and with uh, the, the Saudi takeover is that um, if you are uh, sort of washing your own face in business terms, only spending what you earn, you're an outlier in football at the moment, right? So you're gonna uh, you're gonna be putting yourself at a disadvantage to all the teams that are. Um, uh, the the being bankrolled by a, a benefactor. So um, once a benefactor comes into your club and replaces a, a sustainable owner, and I mean, I wouldn't sort of consider Mike Ashley for a number of reasons to be a sort of the ideal individual to be to be running a football club. Uh, but um, if you've if you've got a benefactor coming in, that's kind of what you need to compete. So if you had a, a system where every uh, club was re- required to be run sustainably, I don't think you would have quite the um, the clamour from from fans to uh, 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 to get billionaire owners in. You wouldn't have um, Chelsea fans chanting the name of uh, you know Roman Abramovich, an oligarch, and uh, commodities magnate, rather than chanting the names of, of, of players and managers, which I, I think is what football fans should be should be doing um it, another sort of uh, related to the point that, that matthew raises is in the lower leagues i mean uh liverpool man united uh chelsea man city the top clubs have all got reasonably predictable income streams they're going to be selling out their stadium every week uh they know how much tv money uh they're going to be getting more or less they've got these long-term commercial partnerships uh Outside the, the Premier League big six, and certainly outside the Premier League, um, you know, attendances can fluctuate enormously from one season to the next, depending on how well the team's doing. So I think it'd be working out how to even um, uh, sort of, even if you have rules saying uh, that teams have to be uh, to run on a break-even basis, how they actually how you actually ensure that they do that. Uh, and what the sort of consequences are if they don't uh, would still be uh, would still be a real challenge. But um, yeah, well, you might you might do what they do in the EFL and kind of cap losses judging over a three season period, for example. Luke, stay there if you would. Thank you. You make a really interesting point, and thank you to Matthew. I do want to welcome onto the show Dennis Gansha. Now, Dennis is a regular contributor to Byline Radio. He's in Kiev, and of course, one of the reasons. Well, primarily the reason we're talking about this is because of the sanctions on Roman Abramovich as a result of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, by Abramovich's mate, Vladimir Putin. So uh, I want to speak to Dennis. And uh, I think the last time we spoke to Dennis, he'd lost a close friend of his. Um, and I'm just really keen that we stay in touch with him and he becomes someone through whom we can we can see the carnage being wrought in Ukraine. Dennis, welcome to Byline Radio. How are you doing? You're right. Hello, Dennis. Uh, Hi, Dennis. Yeah, can you hear me? 
I can now, yes, Dennis, yes. Tell us where you are and how things are, my friend. Uh, so I'm on the outskirts of Kiev. Just in the morning, there was some bombarding just not far from us. And I'm really uh, inspired by the topic you're talking right now because I'm also a big football fan. But of course, right now, I even missed some Champions League matches, which I wanted to watch because there is no time for football right now, unfortunately. And really happy to speak to you answer all of your questions. Yeah, no, listen, uh, I, I know that we spoke off air one time and you said that you, you took my team, West Bromwich Albion, into the Champions League. Sadly, it was, it was only on only on football, into the Champions League, it was only on football manager that you managed to achieve that. <laughs> oh, it was on FIFA. Oh, on FIFA, OK. <laughs> well done. Uh, nobody else is going to do it in real life. So, uh, But it, on, on to much more serious matters, Dennis. I, I think... It may have been just after we last spoke or maybe when we were on air last time, but you had lost a close friend in one of the bombardments. Yeah, but unfortunately, my friend uh, died in his flat. Uh, he was staying in the peaceful district of Kharkiv in a two-story apartment and the rocket flew just into his flat. This is terrible because uh, Russian terrorists, they're destroying our schools, they're destroying maternity hospitals, it's more than 200 schools already destroyed. They even destroyed the football stadium in Chernihiv today. So they still call it a military object. It's like, it's crazy. And like, um, another story is that uh, the flat I was living in for the last two months, uh, near it, there is like unfinished building, a new skyscraper in the peaceful district of Kharkiv. And they even hit the, this. So their tactic, I don't know if it is true, but probably to scare the civilians because yesterday our Minister of Defense, he told us that more civilians from Ukrainian side died in this war than our warriors, than our army. More civilians than the army in the war. At which point can this be possible? There's certainly talk in the UK media, Dennis, of President Putin theoretically being tried as a war criminal for targeting civilians. But of course, whether Putin will ever be held accountable for his crimes is very much dependent, I guess, on what happens in the next few weeks and months in Ukraine. Uh, yeah, it's really true. And of course, he's. Uh, we can even call him terrorist. This is already true because uh, our diplomacy is now working a lot and collecting evidence for the international courts. But the thing is that, of course, Putin will not accept any decisions from international organizations. You have seen already that Russians have even left uh, the Council of Europe, uh, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. Uh, and so they are trying probably to create the new Iron Curtain so that they are not speaking to the world. They will not speak to the world. They will not accept our decisions. So it's really important for us in Ukraine, in the Europe, to continue resisting and to fighting. I really like the quote of uh, Yuval Noy Harari, who said that in this war, you even being uh, in Manchester, in California, you can join it by fighting with Ukrainians on the digital front, by sending volunteer support, humanitarian support, by sending money directly to us. And thanks a lot of you. I, I'm, I'm really seeing that a lot of listeners, they have Ukrainian flags, F-word Putin. You're great, guys. 
<laughs> yeah, well, those are people who are listening to us uh, today. Somebody who does have F. Putin as his uh, Twitter avatar at the moment. And I'd like to say hello as well to Stephen, to Jambo, to Forgia, to Watcher, to uh, Basia, to Jordan, to John C., to Jonathan, to Nathan, to Luke to Lloyd, to Matty, and to Emma. So many people tuning in to Byline, to Radio, Byline Radio, and I'm sure the vast majority of them, Dennis, are totally supportive of your situation, as indeed am I, un- unquestionably and wholeheartedly. And you've mentioned the, the bombardments that you've heard in Kiev today. We have reports of Russian troops seemingly attempting to encircle Kiev. Have you seen that? Have you seen any Russian troops on the streets where you are? Uh, like I'm uh, on the south of Kiev, so this is probably the part it will be nearly hard to reach for them, nearly impossible. Uh, just two days ago, there were some rockets flying over me, but however, like artillery shot them down. And speaking about the reports of encircling Kyiv, uh, yesterday they were trying to attack Kyiv from the east, from the city of Brovary, but our army destroyed them so well. They really destroyed the whole column of tanks that uh, there is no way they can come to Kyiv right now. Because, uh, believe me, Kyiv right now, at every street, is so well prepared to fight is so well prepared to hold the defense. It's just the case that right now we really need to make sure that people from Mariupol have humanitarian corridor, that people from Kharkiv have humanitarian corridor, to bring back uh, Kherson, Novokovka, Melitopol, which are in the south. But Mariupol is a real disaster. It's a humanitarian disaster already, and what uh, the Russian barbarians are doing there is just unacceptable. Yeah, well, we've seen, amongst other things, amongst other atrocities, the uh, targeting, of course, of a maternity hospital, of all things, in Mariupol. Um, A couple of days ago, Dennis, and I've not spoken to you since this, there was a a development whereby Poland was seeking to offer MiG-29 fighter jets to Ukraine. Poland wouldn't do it directly because it feared that yeah. Russia would see that as antagonistic by Poland. But they instead proposed that the fighter jets would be sent to the German airbase, the United States airbase in Germany, in Ramstein. Uh, but the United States also said that it couldn't take the jets there because, again, the United, the Russians would see that as antagonistic and it might start World War Three. But there have been repeated calls from Ukrainian politicians for a a no-fly zone to be enforced above Ukraine by NATO. Do you think that is possible? Do you fear that that would start World War III? Uh, What I really want to stress on is our president, who's our diplomacy, is saying that uh, if you cannot impose the no-fly zone, by yourself, of course, we do understand this for many reasons, because you care about the security of your own people also. Uh, you can give us the means to do this. And this is what our president was stressing for a lot of time. We do not really need your like warriors here, your troopers. We do not need you to come to Ukraine. You should protect your borders also. This is important. This is why Poland is saying that it wants to have new planes and give us the old ones. 
because it's also important for you to protect your borders because nobody knows what will be the next move of uh, Putin's army. But it's really, uh, it will save a lot of lives, believe me, because right now the Ukrainian army has already proven that on the ground we will destroy them. There is no way they can win us on the ground. But in the air, of course, they have their advantage. And this is the problem which we are trying to deal with. But uh, generally speaking, of course, uh, there are a lot of support which is not disclosed by security reasons. And this was mentioned a lot by our Ministry of Foreign Affairs. It's just that uh, not everything is disclosed and not everything is going to the public. Dennis, we really hope that you stay safe and we'll stay in touch with you over the coming days and weeks and feature you regularly on Byline Radio. We're now doing a, a daily show Monday to Friday and we'll touch in with you again and fingers crossed for you and for your fellow Ukrainians. Thank you so much for joining us, Dennis. Thank you so much and hope West Bromwich Albion will get to some wins soon. <laughs> well, compared to your situation... It's nothing, but I will happily take three points against Huddersfield tonight. <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. Have a great day. Bye. Great to speak to you. I want to bring in as well um, Stephen Colgrave. Now, Stephen is one of the founders of the Byline Times, and I just want to tell you about the Byline Festival, which is taking place next month in London. Stephen, welcome along. Your first appearance on Byline Radio. How are you doing? You're right. Very good, Adrian. Yeah, very, very pleased to be here. Yeah, it's lovely to have you on, and uh, we will go back to the uh, football's dirty money in a moment with Luke and uh, any other callers who want to join in. But I think the Byline Festival, which was kind of one of the wellsprings from which the Byline Times arose, is back. It's been unavailable due to COVID, but it's back again. And for people who don't know about the festival, just give us the big sell, Stephen. Yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic to be back after a couple of years. Um, we started the festival in 2017 uh, in a forest uh, down in Sussex. Um, the last one we did in 2019, we actually had 8,500 people turn up. We also sneaked one in in New York in 2017. But we are actually coming back this time to London, which is great. We're going to be at Ackland Village um, in North Kensington. And Byline Festival is the only festival in the world that really wants to, to change the world. And um, that's what it's all about. Um, I think the difference is that in 2019, Byline Times was fairly sort of embryonic. Uh, and now we have lots of fantastic writers. So the idea of the festival it is a festival. It's not a conference, which means that we do have lots of talk panels during the day. But um, in the evening, we have uh, music and comedy and some special events. Probably the most special event is the Bad Press Awards, which this year are going to be run by Jonathan Pye, who's taken the baton over from, from John Cleese. And the Bad Press Awards, as we say, is a bit like a mix between the Bad Sex Awards and the Oscars on a good night. Um, and what we do is we actually uh, award some of the worst excesses of the press. And um, this year, Byline TV are going to be actually taking videos of us trying to give the awards to people. So expect us to be turning up to News International and trying to pop awards on their desk or, you know, doorstepping Rupert Murdoch and things like that, which will be good fun. Um, oh, don't be giving away who the winners are now, Stephen. Um, well, I'm afraid it, it, it's slightly boring <laughs> because, you know, um, we always find an award somewhere. But yes, um, yes, but we've also got um, Don Letts uh, DJing. We've got a salsa band and a samba band. Uh, we've got our poet laureate, which is uh, Selena Godden. But we, we kick off actually with a, a, a live 
um, on-stage version of our Byline TV Live, um, which is going to include um, Peter Jutson and Carol Cadwallader um, talking very much about the sort of information wards and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's great fun. We'd, we'd love you all to, to be there. If you can't be there, we also have virtual tickets this year and Byline TV is creating a sort of outside broadcast of it all, which is, you know, not streaming, it's get, make you feel you're actually actually there. So it's on the 29th, uh, Saturday the 29th of April through to... Uh, Sorry, Friday, 29th of April through to uh, Sunday evening on the 1st of May. And um, you can check out tickets and everything at uh, um, bylinefestival.com. Yeah, I'll be there uh, doing a bit of uh, byline radio on the Saturday, I think, as you say, fantastic. No, we're really looking forward to uh, for, to you uh, broadcasting out byline radio. So it'll be an outside broadcast for byline radio as well. Possibly our first, yes. Which involves You need to have one of those like Radio 1 sort of caravans that you can do it from. <laughs> it's you great. Know, no, and, um, Byline Radio, it's my phone, Stephen. That's all I'll have for my OB. It's brilliant. Well, um, well, we'll, we'll pop you in the green room, so at least you'll, you know, at least you'll be sort of bumping into the right people and uh, have a nice comfy sofa. So we'll, we'll make sure right, you have then. that. But, I mean, great, great yeah. people like Jonathan Pye, as you've mentioned, Dawn Butler, the MP, Carol Cadwallader, as you mentioned in conversation with Peter Duke, Sanjeev Bhaskar, David Harewood. It's going to be great. Stephen, thank Rhea, you. Rhea Ferdinand. Rhea Ferdinand as well. Ferdinand, and, in conversation and, and, with you. Yeah, and Lord Dubbs, who was one of the uh, kinder children, uh, transport children, uh, you know, who's yeah. going to talk about being a refugee. And he's going to introduce the refugees choir. One last thing. I know I have to go so you can get back to football. But we've also got Howard Goodall composing a, uh, a special piece that we're going to sort of premiere for the first time. Um, so that's going to be quite exciting, too. So, yeah, it's all going to be good fun. And we're really looking forward to seeing everybody there. So that's uh, Friday the 29th of April to Sunday the 1st of May at Acklam Village, North Kensington, London. More details at bylinefestival.com. Thanks very much indeed, Stephen. See you soon, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Cheers. Let's just get a, a final word now uh, from Luke Hildyard. And Luke, as I say, is from a think tank, the High Pay Centre. And he's been holding our hand through this debate around football's dirty money today. Uh, Luke, I mentioned the you know, the various sources of global money and indeed UK-based money uh, of uncertain provenance floating around the game. There is a movement, and I know Kieran perhaps was a little bit sceptical about this, but the government, the, the, there is a movement to kind of challenge this a little bit. And Tracy Crouch had her fan-led review of football governance we await news of whether that's going to be included in the Queen's speech. But if that were introduced, you would have a regulator, an independent regulator of football, but government-backed independent regulator for the first time with the power to sanction owners, with the power in theory to demand information from owners about who they are and where their wealth has come from. That would be a tougher law, I suppose, for football than a reply generally to society, but I think many fans would say, and a good thing too. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, if it could, uh, if the regulator could intervene around things like ticket prices, uh, uh, TV rights, and, and and where games are broadcast, whether it's on uh, cha- subscription channels that uh, are, are beyond the means of many people, or you know, on uh, public uh, terrestrial what used to be called terrestrial television that's accessible to everyone, uh, that would be 
uh, that'd be very welcome as well. Um, it would be interesting to see how uh, a, a football regulator might um, uh, might engage with with owners and those whose money is of dubious provenance. I would say, uh, in most cases, the the people who are owning Premier League clubs uh, have have got hold of the, their wealth in, in controversial means. I mean, from an economic perspective, no one needs hundreds of millions let alone billions of pounds uh, of wealth it's far more than is necessary to reward or incentivize anyone for hard work or, or innovation um, no one is that much harder working or smarter than anybody else to merit uh, a lifestyle uh, that's so much more materially affluent than uh, than a average or or, or or low means person so, you know, if you've got hundreds of millions of pounds or billions of pounds in wealth, you've probably achieved that by through wealth extraction rather than wealth creation, through uh, extra- exploiting other people's work, uh, hard work or, or innovation and monetizing it rather than uh, rather than through your own. Um, so, yeah, I can't imagine that uh, the football regulator, certainly not one... Um, instituted under a conservative government taking quite the same line as me on billionaire wealth but um you know it's just, it's just, it would be a step in the, the right direction if and when it happens and i also think it's quite a um, it, it's quite a good way of highlighting those is- these issues of, of of inequality and of how uh, money just enables you to buy success in football, because that's quite a neat metaphor for uh, for the UK economy and you know the, the global economy as a whole as it's currently structured, and um, that's um, you know that's a very depressing and unfair state of affairs. So um, yeah, ho- hopefully a, a means to start to start a broader debate that goes beyond football.